All right, here we are. Uh, here we are. Welcome back. I always I'm feel like we should back. record some of the, you know, the banter beforehand because it's what's, what's in the, the show silly. is in the show. I know it's some of the silliest things though that we do, right? Well, it, doesn't, you know, it doesn't actually make it into the show, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know if this is an actual joy that I've shared, but the Flophouse podcast, do you listen to that? No. So You're that's, jumping uh, to joys right No, from no, the I'm not jumping to joys. But but there's a podcast I listen to, which could be a joy. I don't think I've mentioned it, but um, but what they always have as the intro to the episode or not, sorry, as like a bloop at the end is like some little bit that happens before the actual episode yeah. starts. And so they cut that off the front and stick it on the back as a little, you know, oh, that's kind of, of funny bonus. Well, I, so I always like. That. This American Life, you know, when they take like some yeah, some yeah. quote from the show and put a lot right. of context at the end, that's my favorite part of This American Life. Yeah. So, and they, but and that's they always not attributed to the producer. What's his name? Um, yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, Troy Malatino. Troy. Tori. Tori Malatino. Tori Malatino. Yeah. Tori Malatino. Yeah. So there's there that. There's that. Yeah. That's All good. right. I'm done here. My All work right. is done. Our work here oh. is done. Mike Troy. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Hey, this is Ollie. Hey. Oh. Hey. And this is God. Hey, look at that. And this is hey, and this is uh, science in between. Yeah, it is. It so is. Here we are. Episode fifty-six. That's 56. so we've we've kind of reached we've finally reached your age. No, thank you. We've passed my age. <laughs> I appreciate that. Jeez, jeez, come on, man. K- kicking you in the shin right there. Yeah, that was real nice. <laughs> yeah. Just just because you're my student doesn't mean you're that much younger than me. Oh, months, months, younger than you. months, months and months. Uh, so what are we talking about today, Scott? I don't what, know. Is, what is the, Apparently we're topic? talking about how old I am, which seems to be a theme. My students asked me that yeah. yesterday. Jeez, it's like, come on, man. Do I look old or something? Did I suddenly like take on an, uh, like a, a decrepit appearance or, I mean, it's been a stressful couple of months. Maybe I just right. look a lot older than I did before. Well, I mean, I'm sure all of the people at home listening, they, they can't see you. So oh, I will, I will, I, I will attest to the fact that you haven't aged a day since the last oh, time look at I saw you. So sweet. <laughs> that is complete nonsense. All right. Uh, all right. Well, enough of this talk about Banter. my this... aging and whether it's, I am older or younger than the current episode number. Uh, let's talk about what the episode's about, Ollie. It is, uh, ambitious science teaching yes we're gonna, we're gonna jump into the ambitious science teaching which is you know we we kind of set it up last week when we talked about uh inclusive practices and we sort of like cast a wide net and talked about all of the different types of inclusive practices that are uh sort of bubbling up in all sorts of areas in terms of ambitious science teaching and universal design for learning and and other things to open the open education movement and we're going to spend some time kind of like unpacking each one of those concepts a little bit more uh in depth over the next few episodes because we think inclusiveness is a pretty important process um, in what we do in education. And, you know, I think that ambitious science teaching is a, a, you know, as, as they say, it's an attention to equity. And so I think that's, that, that's it. That's an important part. And, and I think that you and I, um, you know, we, we see that as a valuable part of uh, what we do as teachers and as professors and as teacher educators. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, uh, and we, we spoke about this a little bit last time too, but um, we probably will add this on to the end um, once we've talked about ambitious science teaching a bit, but that community has evolved and there's a, there's a new group of scholars who are doing some work around critical and cultural ambitious science teaching. So CCAST, I don't know how to pronounce that, CACAST or CAST or 
they yeah, you, know, that's, that's, you know too many too many uh acronyms C's, in the world. too many c's there are many c's so um, and we'll talk about that, which is a sort of way of framing the practices uh, to emphasize even more the the um, the critical and cultural nature of how these practices should be enacted. Right. But we're, we'll talk more generally about the practices to begin with so that we have a sense of of what the purpose of them are and uh, what they're trying to accomplish. So we thought we'd spend some time today talking about the the eliciting student ideas part of the ambitious science teaching. And this is something that I think we've talked a little bit about, especially with uh, the Brian Brown series of episodes, you mm-hmm. know, friend of the show, Brian Brown friend of the show. and, and, and how, um, you know, he sets the stage for listening ideas. Cause there's a lot of it is around talk, but I think that was the focus more for, for him. And, and I think we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about other aspects, not just about the talk and how we use the talk, but about how we elicit the ideas. Is that mm-hmm. a good way to frame that? Yeah. So, I mean, we had a we had an episode where we talked about um, sort of how we start with the phenomenon, yeah. um, and ta- and and the focus of that was really on the phenomenon. How do you pick it? What does it look like? What is its purpose? Why do you start there? Um, but I think what we're going to talk. So that was sort of like the first of the AST practices, which is about planning, though we didn't go deep into that and we may have to revisit that. But what we're going to talk about today is the first of the, what they describe as the enactment or discourse practices. So these are the, these are the things that you do as a teacher with kids in class. Um, And so we're going to talk about the first of those, which is tightly linked to this idea of a phenomenon and, uh, and why you bring up a phenomenon and what you do with, you know, that bringing up of a phenomenon with your students once you've done it. So I think that's really where we're starting today. Sure. And I think that's a great place to start. And I, I think it does, it does tie into, you know, it does build on that, you know, the phenomenon, uh, you know, if we talked about like, know, maybe like five episodes ago, because mm-hmm. you, you were digging into why phenomenon and what counts as that. And that's all from the, the planning stage of it. And this is, okay, now that you've done this, now that you've been engaged them, what do you do? What do you, well, right. how do you, how do you create that discourse community in the class? And I think that, you know, one of the things I was thinking about this um, in, in my uh, drive this morning uh, was a little bit from the standpoint of, you know, how do you create the culture in your classroom in mm-hmm. which that sort of conversation is valued? The mm-hmm. reason I was thinking about it is because I had a, uh, a uh, conversation with a couple of my students who are out in schools right now, and they were talking about like some of the feedback they were getting and some of the formative assessments they were using with their students and how some of the students are just writing down like, I don't know, or leaving things blank right. um, on, on assessments. And I, I said that a lot of your their response as teachers is is important to this to create the culture in the classroom and 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 so because I worry that you leave this open for conversations if you're listening ideas that you're gonna have students that just throw lit, like any ideas out there and not that any idea isn't a good idea it's just that you're gonna have some you know merry pranksters who are gonna True. say like little men, you know, that they're yeah. like, what, why does this happen? Because of little men that are invisible for us that right. we can't see. And, and they don't really believe that they're just, you know, being a prankster, right? Yeah. They're just, That's right. and, and so then it comes to the culture of the classroom that you create to make sure that people are understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it and how it, you know, fits into the overall, you know, classroom environment. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, one of the things I talk about with my 
pre-service and, and even in-service teachers uh, about when we're talking about these these practices and ambitious science teaching as a set of practices is that, um, you know, there you, you can't just put rules on the board. You can't say, here's what yeah. we do in class. And in the same way, the teacher can't have a set of rules for the way that they talk. I mean, this is, you know, I talk a lot about this is really relationship building and, and that doesn't have a script and it doesn't have a set of rules. It requires you to be improvisational. It re- requires you to be responsive. And so that means that it's a little more difficult. And, uh, and what that also means is that the norms of the classroom, like what, what you, how you talk and, and how you interact with each other has to be established over time. And in the beginning it's wonky and it takes time and the kids don't really get it because it's very different than what they're used to. And, but if you're consistent and you, and you are clear about the idea that we value ideas, um, and goofy ideas are goofy ideas. And eventually the goofy ideas start to disappear because it turns out that the, the less goofy ideas are a lot more interesting to the kids right. too. It's just that they use those goofy ideas as a sort of defense mechanism in the beginning because they are like, well, you know, normally in a class when I give my idea, it, if it's not exactly right, um, I get sort of punished p- publicly usually for that. And punished by somebody evaluating my idea in a negative way. So there is this thing of how do you create on a core level, a sense of safety about these ideas that kids can say stuff in class and that their ideas will be evaluated and pushed against, but based on some stable criteria that are about the quality of the idea and how empirically testable it is and how much it contributes to our understanding rather than whether it's canonically the right answer. I I just love every time you say the word canonically. I just love it. Canonically. Yeah. Yeah. How about normative? Uh, How do you feel about normative? Uh, you know, normative is okay, but canonically, but cano- canonics. Yeah. yeah, that like that hits me right here. Yeah, uh, yeah, it does. It, so, so epistemic, mm, so mm. good, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> delicious. No, thank you. <laughs> little, so, t- little too much. Little too much. Uh, um, so we do this as science teachers. We do this 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 a listening ideas thing for for a couple reasons. Well, actually, not a couple reasons. Like you know, as as I think about it, and probably as you think about it too. You know, I think about it from one. We're trying to you know assess their prior knowledge. You know, to see really what their you know their understandings are. Like okay, so right. you know if we can you know create this phenomenon and or show them this and then. Um, and then try to have some conversation around it, that we get a better sense of like what they're bringing to the table, what they're mm-hmm. bringing to it, not only from their prior understandings, but also like what are the words and, and phrases uh, that they use to describe this thing, exactly. right? Yep. Because that's the thing we want to like tap into. That's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, like the Brian Brown thing right there, mm-hmm. right? That's where, yep. you know, cause w- it gives us terminology for us to draw upon and, and it might not be coming back to normative, right. And mm-hmm. not might, might not be the canonically approved, right. Mm-hmm. Terminology, mm-hmm. but it gives us something to build upon as teachers and something for us to draw upon as teachers um, to say, okay, you, you called it, you know, squishiness, right. Right. And then, so we can, you know, teach a whole, you know, lesson around squ- squishiness or build a whole, you know, thing, you know, activity and, you know, engagement and inquiry based thing around squishiness. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then as we develop a better sense of what squishiness looks like, then, you know, kind of, you know, direct, you know, yeah. and, 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the idea is you want the language and experience of the kids to be the starting point of of right. the of the investigation. And so you that's what eliciting is, is really about is like how are kids thinking about this? And oftentimes, you know, the reality is they haven't thought about this phenomenon in any kind of deep way in the past. So so they're producing this thinking in the moment, but you put them in groups, you let them talk with each other. And uh, and doing that helps them begin to develop comfort, develop an idea that their ideas are valued, and also that this is a community effort, and that you know we, these ideas are shared, and they come into the the public discourse, and then we evaluate them and, and investigate them and decide if they're if if we think they're supporting our understanding or not. So so that whole process um, is something that that builds the classroom community, but it also gives kids this initial jumping off point for connecting, right? Because it, one of the other things that happens in this process of eliciting when, when they're developing their initial explanations as a group of this phenomenon is they start to develop questions. Like, I don't understand this part of it. You know, why are there bubbles forming here? Or why is this happening? Or why is that happening? Or whatever. So they're so it's not just to get their explanations, but it's also to get them to think about which parts of the explanation do they not have yet. And, and that drives the kind of questions that they have that they want to investigate. And I think the other part is that, it, you know, we have this, we're seeing the prior, their prior understanding, we're getting some sort of terminology, but we also can really tap into maybe some of the prior experiences they've had too, right? Because yeah. they, they're, you know, I think that, you know, I mean, this was a big term when we were going through, uh, you know, teacher education programs at Tabla Rasa, right? That, yeah. you know, the blank slate that students, you know, we wanted to, view students as not coming to our classrooms with blank slates, but it's not just that they have terminology and have prior understandings, but they've also have prior experiences with all sorts of things that may have created these sorts of like alternative, you know, conceptions, you know, what we used mm -hmm. to call misconceptions right. um, of how the world or how the topic works. And so that's important for us to build into our, our instruction. That's important for us to like really tap into and, and leverage as we teach. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think the, you know, one of the big differences in the shift from when we were in teacher education to now it is this foundational learning theory piece, which is, you know, the, the way we were prepared was mostly from a conceptual change point of view where where those the reason those things were labeled as misconceptions is they were seen as barriers between right. the kids understanding and a canonical understanding and so they were bad that's why the miss part which doesn't mean good it means bad right so and i think one of the fundamental shifts in ast is this foundational shift in the way that we think about learning which is that learning is a, a cultural and social event and it and it it requires you to bring your experience and knowledge to the table and that kids ideas are not misconceptions they're ideas that are productive that can be built upon right? right it's just that you know we don't often get past the either you got it right or you got it wrong thing to find out what kids actual thinking is and when we get their thinking we find out well there's you know there's you know kids are reasonable thinkers. They can, they can think about stuff just like we can. And so it, it, their, their ideas are initially naive, usually because they haven't ever thought about this stuff before. Um, and so, so seeing those things instead of barriers to learning as foundational and important to learning. And, 
Um, you know, you can't, you can't learn something new if you don't know what you already know. And so really what you're uncovering is both for yourself and for the kids, what, what do we already know? And how can we use that as a jumping off point to, to, to know better, to know more, to know more deeply, to better understand this thing, um, um, so, and not to get to the right answer. So from a, from a barrier to an opportunity, from a barrier to a springboard, yep. and that's, that's the big, huge shift. But I don't know if that shift is happening you know, widely. I mean, it's certainly happening in you know, the teacher candidates that we're working with. Um, and I think it's happening uh, to a degree in schools, but I don't know if it's, you know, as widespread as we would hope. Right. And no, and- well, and I think that that goes back to, you know, some of the other times that we've talked about this is that not only is a sort of conceptual change, cognitive perspective on learning sort of baked into our bones, it's also yeah. deeply baked into our systems. And so yeah. you're, it, you know, it's the way that we think about it. We think about individual knowing, like I'm going to assess Ollie's understanding of this thing, not, I'm going to give a task to Ollie and Scott that they can work on together and see what they can produce. It's like, no, I don't want to know that because I want to compare Ollie to Scott and see who's better. Ollie, obviously. Um, and (laughs) that's right. So the, the blue bird and I'm in the brown birds. Um, and I know that it's okay. Um, but that's, you know, that's really, you know, it's this fundamental, it, it, it requires such a massive shift. Like we think, oh, it's just about the teaching. No, it's not just about the teaching. Oh, well, it's just about like the kids, like they need to learn. And it's like, well, yeah, that that's part of it. They need to shift and they need to understand, but the administrators need to understand and the, and the, and this, the parents need to understand. And every, like, there has to be a, a cultural shift in the way that we think about learning for a lot of this stuff to happen. And, and, you know, it's gradual and I'm hoping that, you know, in my lifetime, we will see more of this, but yeah, I think it's, I think you're right. The vast majority of instruction doesn't look like this. Yeah. And I, you know, my, my hope is that there's, you know, I was, I was out in schools yesterday and um, I spent some time in science classrooms and uh, I was, you know, there's some, some really great things happening in science mm-hmm. classrooms. And I think one of the things that's really cool is that I'm while you know this movement's happening in terms of how students you know uh, prior knowledges and and you know conceptions of the world are are changing from you know these barriers to opportunities. I'm also seeing this movement to like growth, a focus on growth, and focus of you know specifically growth mindset, which is kind of like becoming sort of its own little like you know buzz buzzy mm-hmm. thing, right? Kind but of, kind, kind of. of, yeah, you know, and it's it's like. Um, we have all of these, I, I don't want to say um, um, amateur psychologists who are out in mm-hmm. schools who are like going, well, if we just put up like the bulletin board, but I will say that it's, it's even if it's being done, you know, in a, um, in a immature way, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, is that a fair way of saying that? I don't want to like be like really biased, like, yeah. but I think that, I think the promise it has is really Great. I think that, you know, those two things go in hand in hand. If we're going to say, okay, you know, let's focus more on growth, right? If we're going to say that, that I think fits into this, at least in the same kind of arena that we want to be in. Because like, rather than focusing it on, you know, this normative thing, right? And saying, okay, and then it kind of fits into that fixed mindset thing where it's like you're either you either have it or you don't you're either right or you're wrong you're either you know able or not you know and 
And we're trying to shift this, you know, mindset to focusing on development and growth. And, and that is in the same arena, maybe not in the same, they may not have the same seats in the arena, but right. they're in the same arena. Yeah, maybe. I mean, we could fight about this because I'm not sure that's true, but certainly, um, well, what would I say? I would say that the problem, the fundamental problem with growth mindset for me is that it, they treat it as an individual attribute. So this kid right. has a fixed or a growth mindset. And for me, that's nonsense. That's like saying yeah. this kid has an IQ or this kid has a yeah. anything that you're going to measure and say is stable over time. I mean, what you really say is we have a culture in this classroom that values I wouldn't call, I don't like growth. I, I think the other problem with growth is- You don't like is, growth? You don't like well, growth? I like growth, I, but I don't like the connotation that growth has now because of growth mindset. And the other thing that happens is like, as soon as you say growth mindset, you still say like, okay, there's a starting point and there's an ending point and we should measure those and see like, well, is Ollie's growth mindset bigger than Scott's? Like pretty soon you start measuring stuff and saying like, oh, Mo- Ollie's got a three growth mindset and Scott's got a one growth mindset. And isn't that too bad for Scott, but maybe we can find some ways to make him better. Like, I think that, you know, it's hard. This is one of those examples of how hard it is to get away from the fundamental ways that we think about learning. Like we, if we say like, what we're trying to do is create an entirely different cultural context and, and learning environment for kids in which their ideas are valued. That's not about the individual kids. Do they have a growth mindset? Do they have motivation? Do they have any of these things, self-efficacy? Because that all assumes that those attributes are individual as opposed to the context that is created and supported by the teacher and the kids in that classroom. So I think- So it's it's cultural. Almost. You could almost say that it's cultural. (laughs) Yeah. Not an individual attribute of some kid that I, I, right. I, you know, they have like a dipstick in the back of their neck and you're going to pull it out and say, oh, your growth mindset's a little low. I'm going to pour some oil in your ear and you're going to, you know, improve your growth mindset. And so you're saying that there's this default to cognitivism rather than social, socioculturalism. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, that's, you'd almost uh, think that I'd said that before, but. Um, <laughs> or written but, a paper on it. <laughs> or something. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it, but it is, it is super hard for us. It's so baked into the way that we think about things that, you know, we do, we don't even recognize when we're doing it. Right. Yeah. And well, so I guess, I guess where I come in up- growth mindset, all these things that have come along that have been like, this is going to be the cure for the kids who are, whose schools are failing. Um, if we just had kids with more grit than the schools, the fact that their school is underfunded and their teachers are underpaid and, and they're, you know, all these other problems like that would just go away. Cause we have gritty kids who would just work their way through that. I mean, it's like, well, I guess where, where, where I, I guess I'm a little bit more generous in that. Yes, I, you are. Oh, in, in the sense that I, at least philosophically, you know, supporting students growth, right? So saying, let's focus on individual students' growth, not like measuring them in terms of their, their self-efficacy or their, you know, how, how much are they on the continuum of growth and fixed mindset, but like creating a culture in your classroom that, you know, celebrates growth that says, you know, what we're trying to do is not that like, you know, um, not that we're trying to create an environment where the, some kids are successful, Mm-hmm. That all kids are successful in a way, right? In the way that they can be and creating an, um, and I think that comes back to that, the culture that you as a teacher create. And so I guess where I, I go is I, I 
try to put everything, you know, it's the, the fish is fish, right? Is it is. So I like, I see everything as fish. And so I go, oh yeah, I see that. And how does that fit into my socio-cultural world? Right. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh yeah, now this can really impact how the culture I create in my classroom. And this is the culture I want to, not that I'm like measuring kids and and doing that, but I'm like going, okay, if I, you know, like I'll hear, here's a perfect for instance. Okay. I was out in the schools, I was working with interns and I uh, was talking to one and she had to record uh, herself teaching. And it's pretty early in the semester for her to be recording her, her, her teaching. Mm -hmm. And she's really anxious about it. And, and she knows that some other interns that were working in the school have had much more responsibility given to them just because, you know, what, wherever they are in their classrooms, but it's also from their own, you know, experiences, maybe the mentors in those were, were much more comfortable with, you know, giving them more responsibility, more, you know, you know, mm-hmm. autonomy in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so this in turn was really anxious about it. And I'm like, look, it's okay. You're at, you're exactly where you need to be from a growth standpoint, like, mm-hmm. and you'll continue to take on more responsibilities. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. You're on this trajectory and we're going to help you, you know, grow and help you improve. And we're going to give you feedback and we're going to do all the things that are necessary to support you and your development as a teacher. Mm-hmm. That to me is not, it's, it's very growth mindset right? It's like, but, and it's about the culture that I'm creating and, and not only with her, but also with all the other interns that I'm working with in that school, but it's around you know, growth. It's not around, Hey, let me, let me pull out my growth mindset survey here. Like take this little click, click, click. Oh, you know? Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I mean, it's tricky, Like you can't take an individual interaction and and do that with it. I don't think um, for lots of reasons, but I think the, you know, my, my gut instinct then is, okay, well, what do you mean by success? And what do you mean by growth? Like, are you going to, then you've got like, oh, is this a value added assessment? Are you going to see, measure her at one time point and another time point and see how much Ollie added to the individual kids in his classroom? That's, that's of, what we do. That's, that's yeah. what I do all the time. I know yeah. you don't, but I, <laughs> I, but I think like, this is how it gets pernicious is, is like, we, we, um, we can think we're like, so this reminds me of another podcast. Have you heard nice white parents? Yes. Heard, right. So this is like, the path to hell is paved with good intentions, right? I think it it is remarkable how, you know, all of these ideas like grit, growth mindset, all of these things are well-intended. I think the problem is their implementation. And the reason their their implementation is problematic is because the whole system is built to make it problematic, right? If you're going to, if you name grit as some sort of attribute, well, the first thing everybody wants to do is measure it. And then they want to measure it with kids. And then they want to make sure the kids are improving on it. And then if they're not improving on it, then those kids are deficient and and the, they're the yeah. deficit kids. Oh, these kids don't have enough grit and that's why they're failing. It's on them. The kids are a failure because they don't have the right amount of grit and we can maybe help them, but it just like, I don't know, man, I think we're spinning off into a interesting we, territory I, here from well, eliciting I ideas, but totally co-opted this and it was not unintentional. Yeah. You know? I Growth just, mindset. It, it was not like, I was just going and saying, Hey, look, I was out in schools. I saw this. I uh, thought it was um, something that 
you know, sort of fit. I guess I apologize to <laughs> you. Don't have to apologize. <laughs> I think this is interesting, but it's not what our topic was. But it is cares? not. It is not. It, well, I think maybe some people are like, "What yeah. the crap?" Like, what are they? Well, doing? but I do think this is fundamental to these ideas. I mean, so let's take a step back. I can I can do some nuts and bolts about eliciting um, students' sure, ideas here, just for let's a second. Cycle back. Let's cycle. Let's back. cycle back. So okay. really, um, let's let's go back to an example that we've used before. That that is. Uh, that is not to use the term again, but the canonical example in AST that gets used all the time. I know, very exciting. Um, which is the tanker car and the crushing of the tanker car. And again, this is like you steam clean a, one of those big rail tanker cars and seal it up and you come back after overnight and it's been crushed in. And so the question is, how does this happen? So, so you, give this ta- you give this phenomenon to kids, you show them a little video that shows it being crushed and it's very exciting and whatever. And then you put them in small groups and you ask them to say, how do you think this happened? And you know, you give them some structure. You you say break it out into a before, during, after. So what's happening before when it's getting clean? What happens after it's sealed up? And then uh, so the during bit, what's going on in there to make it crush? And then how does it? You know, then in the end it's crushed. So um, so then the kids start generating ideas. Well, the point at this point isn't to teach the kids the science, the point of the eliciting at this point is to get their ideas as clearly stated and um, unambiguous as possible, and then to push them towards, in this case, um, microscopic explanation. So to say like, okay, can you tell me what's going on with the atoms there that's causing this phenomenon? So, so it's not just asking them questions to explain themselves, but it's pushing them in a particular way. And the way that you, you prepare yourself for that as a teacher is you write your own explanation. And I think this cannot be understated how important this is. Like if you're going to do this kind of teaching, you have to write out your own explanation because when you do, you realize what a Swiss cheese mess your own explanation is because you've never had to do this before if this is your first time. And so that forces you to really think through, well, do I actually know what pressure means in this context? Do I know how pressure is created on the inside? Do I know how equilibrium is established, right? That, That there's you've got all this hot air and water vapor on the interior of the tanker and cooler air on the exterior of the tanker, but they're at the same pressure because of equilibrium. How does that happen? Like, how does nature know that the pressures have to be the same? Well, of course it doesn't. So something physically is going on there. So can we talk about that in terms of atoms? Like that's what we're doing is pushing them to really try and to the best of their ability, explain what they can and recognize in the process, the limits of their own understanding. And that gets to the questions like, okay, I don't really get that. I don't understand how it is that we know that nature knows or the atoms know or whatever that, that that there should be equal pressure on the outside and the inside of this tanker at any given time. So it's, so that's really, that's a quick, like, here's how you think about it, a way of, of dealing with it. So you, you do that. And the idea is to get everybody, every group to develop their own pretty you know, robust initial explanation. And then usually there, there involves uh, sharing amongst groups. So each group sort of reports out on their model. But at this point, the purpose is not, as I said, to teach. The purpose is to give them an initial framework so that as they continue to investigate this phenomenon, they have a touch point to return to. Oh, I have my initial explanation. What is this new thing that I did help me understand that I can add to that explanation and make it more robust, more productive, more useful? 
So I, I, a couple of things I want to cycle back to. One, one of was the, the uh, part where you said that the, the teachers have to write their own explanations. And I want to stress how important this is. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, in, I think back to one of the most valuable things that you taught me when I was your student was the importance of writing and how mm. hard it is and how important it is. And so when I really am struggling with my ideas, I, I don't just sit and like, you know, muse, I sit and write. And cause I, I feel like selecting the right words to describe something and, and making it somewhat coherent is hard work, yeah. but that, so I used to just write to tell, mm-hmm. and now I've kind of switched to write to learn. Mm-hmm. And that writing to learn is, was a valuable shift that I think you, you know, set the stage for that. And, yeah. and so, Thanks. um, yeah, so props to you. Um, and I think that that's a good way of framing it for, you know, if you're a science teacher out there and you're like, going, I, I know how to do it. I know the explanation, write it down, write it down. The ideal gas law. Right. I know it. Well, write it down and you're going to really find out how well you know it and how well you're going to have to describe it. Um, and I think the other part that I, I worry a little bit as a teacher, as I'm thinking about this, you know, we're li- listening ideas and we're trying to tap into, you know, some terminology that we can draw upon and some experiences that we can draw upon as teachers. I worry, like if I'm teaching, I don't know, five classes of eighth grade science, mm-hmm. That's going to be, that could potentially be five different classes with five different like experiences and questions and, you know, potentially terminology, you know, maybe one group is calling this, you know, squishiness, you know, Mm -hmm. another group is calling it something else. And so I think there's going to be some parts for you as a teacher who are going to have to really maybe up the game in terms of planning, not necessarily from planning ahead of it, but like, like I was never the person who were like, I knew where I ended at the end of class. And I was like, I'll just pick up there tomorrow. Well, if, you know, we have these cultural, like, like cultural environments in which the, you know, this class is using, you know, we've created this terminology, these questions and so on. And this Mm -hmm. other classes that it might be challenging as a teacher um, to sort of like know where all of them are, you know? Yeah, no, I think it, it is difficult and it, and it does require more, um, maybe bookkeeping. Yeah. I was going to say, maybe it's not planning. It's more just like sort of tracking and remembering across, um, these different communities. But I think, you know, to your point, one of the, one of the things that we see, um, you know, one of the teachers at, that I work with has this idea that science doesn't have synonyms, right? So actually what a lot of, so force doesn't mean momentum, doesn't mean energy. They're not the same thing. And so if you use them as if they're the same thing, then you're doing something wrong in the sense of you're sowing confusion, right? The goal, the reason that science has technical terminology for things is exactly that to, to carefully differentiate between concepts so that when you're communicating with someone you're communicating as clearly as possible. And that's really what we're talking about here. So the initially kids will use lots of science terms and they'll also use lots of non-science terms and it all is a big soup. And, and on some level, the purpose of all of this activity is to clearly define the core concepts that you're using to explain this phenomenon. Like one of the ones that they're doing right now is, is the, the, basically the principle is, if things have different properties, then they are different substances, right? Which sounds pretty straightforward. And you could write that on the board, but kids don't know what that actually means. Right. 
And so like getting them to work through some experiences where that where they make an evidence-based claim that things that have different properties are different substances, that's profound, right? Because now they really understand what that means. Like they understand that like if if you cut a piece of cheese in half, it's still cheese, but they understand that it, if you burn cheese, then something has changed about it on a molecular level that it's no longer cheese, it's this new thing. Like that that really is a big deal and fundamental to all of chemistry, but we just put it on the board and assume everybody knows what it means. And and these teachers are taking you know multiple weeks to walk through experiences like burning steel wool and separating water into hydrogen and oxygen and things like that. But in the context of trying to understand, okay, we've got this sugar, we're going to put it on a hot plate and it's going to burn. Well, what is that? Is that stuff that's left over? Is it still sugar or is it something else? And as simple as that sounds. That leads to a really profound and interesting set of investigations that bring these kids to the point where they can say some interesting things about chemistry that most of their high school peers, frankly, don't understand, which yeah. I think is pretty cool. It is pretty cool. And it's pretty cool to think about the, the types of uh, explanations that are going to come out of there, the types of questions that come out of that. Right. Um, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that if that did eliciting in, but I, I you know, it's it's a good jumping off point. It gives us a start. It it, sure. it frames out that thing. So maybe we uh, you have you have a look of time for joy. I do. I have I have a joy. I have a joy. All right. I bet you do. You you uh, you are my friend are very enthusiastic and always prepared when it comes to oh, joy. And I'm always joyful. I have to say, I true. try to be as joyful as possible. And um, I do want to say that when, when you were talking about nice white parents, that was a joy of mine uh, in season one. So yep. there you go. Go there back. Go. Oh, it's, look, it's way there. back machine. So you way, you, you way back. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have a joy and, and it's not uh, a comic book um, a joy. It's not, it doesn't come from the, you know, any comic book world. It it's is not, music related. No, it's not Shang-Chi. That was last week. Um, yep. And so I will say that um, this recently there was a uh, an album of cover tunes that were was released mm. that I, I want to highlight that I think is a, a real joy. Um, so it's a, my joy is musical related there. There's a, um, you know, uh, I'm thinking that maybe some people are thinking that I'm going to go towards Metallica, which just released this huge album of covers with like, I don't know, 10 versions of Enter Sandman and 15 versions of this and that. Oh, oh no, no, that's not the direction. Oh, contraire, mon frere. Oh, contraire. Instead, I'm going to an album called Spanish Model, which is Elvis Costello songs. So it's all Elvis Costello uh, covers where Elvis Costello is actually the Elvis Costello and the attractions are, you know, part of this album. They're part of this project. Um, but they bring in all Spanish speakers. So all of the songs that you may know and love from, from, you know, Elvis Costello, the Elvis Costello days. So like pump it up and, you know, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, there's just a ton of them on this album. So like, Allison, uh, do they do Allison? Uh, there is, I'm looking to see if there is an Allison version. Cause there, if there's not that there's radio, radio, oh, radio. Sure. Yeah. So all of these songs that you know, and love, um, there doesn't seem that there's an Allison on there, wow. which is a total heartbreak. Wow. I just thought of that. Like I was going through my brain going, did they yeah. was Allison on? I didn't remember, but they're all in Spanish. So one That's of the, cool. th- so like one of my, um, 
my favorite Wes Anderson movies is uh, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zuzo, mm-hmm. Zuzu, which uh, has all these David Bowie tunes, but I think they're in like Portuguese. Um, so they're all recorded. And I just, we listen to that all the time. And so hearing these songs that you know and love, you know, with a new twist is always kind of cool. Yeah, that's know? awesome. Yeah, so uh, Spanish Model uh, is the album, Elvis Costello. Okay, so it's actually by Elvis Costello, but he brings well, in think- Spanish. Well, I singers, think he, or does he yes, sing I think it? It, he it brings in Spanish speakers, so it looks like he's on on there redoing some of these songs, but mm. with all Spanish speakers. Cool. So, yeah, that's awesome. All right, yeah. they're all, all in right. Spanish. Well, what's that? They're, they're in Spanish. Spanish. Yeah, they're in Spanish. Yeah. It's like Spanish. They're Spanish. So, did did I mention that they're in Spanish? Yeah, they they did. Not Portuguese, which is your other favorite album that's awesome. But that's David Bowie in Portuguese. This is Elvis Costello in Spanish. It's not David Bowie. Not David Bowie. This is Elvis Costello. Yeah. And it's not Portuguese. It's Spanish. It's Spanish. (laughs) Related languages, but not identical. Yeah. I think that they're they're near each other. Near. Yeah. Geographically. (laughs) Yes. If you were to paint a picture of the map where Spanish is taught or spoken and yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we've mined that well enough. <laughs> All right. Do you have a joy? Do you have a joy, I do besides, have a joy. This, besides this conversation right here? Yeah. <laughs> that it is a joy. But I, I, I do have a joy. Um, and this is uh this is I don't know, I don't know how to describe this. It's a little unusual joy. Um, but <clears throat> a couple of weekends ago I went away with a group of friends and we hadn't been away for from home with a group of friends in a while, and it was nice. But while we were up there, one of the friends that was along um, is a um, an aerospace engineer at Penn State. And one of the things that he has done with his quote unquote spare time is he invented the hydrofoil surfboard. So this is a, it's called a lift hydrofoil surfboard. And it it's um, and he brought he has one, of course, uh, not surprisingly, he doesn't actually, you know, he sold the patent and and. Um, a company develops them, but, um, but he has one and he brought it. And we, a few of us who were up and were interested, were able to ride this thing. And, um, it's just, it's, it was a lot of fun. Um, it's, it's a, it's a very small surfboard. It looks sort of like a, what you would think of as a boogie board, if you're familiar with that sort of shape and size. And then it's got a long fin underneath it. And then, a and, and then, a uh, basically a wing, at the bottom with a, with an engine on it and you stand on the board and you have a little throttle in your hand and you pull the trigger and this, this board gets going. And at first it just sort of goes, you know, it's like powered. So it just moves along in the water. But eventually if you get, get up to speed and you, you tilt your body the right way, it actually comes up out of the water. So the board can be, uh, you know, wow, two, two so feet cool. out of the water and this foil is down in the water and then there's this fin. So it looks like magic and it, and it's just, re- it was a lot of fun to ride. So, um, so that gave me, uh, some real joy and it was a, it was a pleasure. I mean, the whole weekend of course was lovely, but it was awesome to have him bring this and share it. And, and he's, uh, he's a, he's a lovely man and is, you know, he has a stand up paddleboard and he sort of paddles around and helped all, like there were kids that were up with us and the kids all tried it. And, you know, he's just very generous. Uh, and he plays coach and is out there paddling around, like do this, do that. Um, and we'll give him a shout out. Jack Langland is, um, is the professor I'm referring to, but, um, but it, yeah, it was, it was just great. So that's super um, cool. Yeah. Now, did you do this on a lake? Was this a lake yeah, or was it just on a lake? 
Yeah, you can. I mean, you can do it anywhere. You can do it in rough water and 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 smooth water. It's obviously easier to learn in smooth water. But the cool thing about the hydrofoil is, because you ride up high, you if it's rough, you don't even really notice it if you get up above the the water. But um, it's yeah, it it was uh it was it was cool, and uh, you know it's a little bit of exercise because you're balancing and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but you're you're mostly you know just cruising around on this thing, which is pretty awesome. That sounds awesome. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. yeah. That's a cool joy. Yeah. It was unique. And I feel uh, privileged to have access to that sort of stuff. Um, one of those being a professor things that comes around every once in a while where you're like, yeah, it's not so bad yeah. no, knowing other professors. They, yeah. they People are doing stuff. cool work like that. Yeah. You know? exactly. That's awesome. All, All right. right. Joyce. There we had some joys. Nice. Had some joys. Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, uh, I guess we'll catch, catch you next time. Yeah. In between. Uh, see you then. See ya.